Hey y'all, great to be back with you. Uh, today we're going to go through 1 Corinthians 6, uh, in continuation of this series on 1 Corinthians. And I want to start that with a review of what we've done up to this point. Because as we've discussed before, this is a letter, and you have to understand the flow of thought. You can't just pick a paragraph out of the middle of a letter and read it, right? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So that's what we're going to do, is, is review a little bit. We'll talk about 1 Corinthians 6 and church discipline and how these things work. And then we're going to wrap up with some of how this applies in the church to us, okay? So first off, in the letter as a whole, Paul is addressing an immature church. We know that from the beginning, okay? He says they're thinking in a fleshly, worldly way, a way that is carnal, a way that is a perspective from this life, in a way that doesn't take into account the next life, doesn't think from a perspective of the spiritual life. It's not a spiritual perspective. It's not God's perspective. It's a merely human perspective, as some translations like to put that. So he, he this has resulted in arguments in the church because people have different human perspectives. They're trying to understand something spiritual and not do it from a spiritual perspective. And it just doesn't make any sense. And so they've got you know, this guy says this and that guy over there says that. And they're kind of dividing up following the different doctrines. And Paul says, stop it. You need to follow God. You need to walk in the Spirit and do it His way and not follow all these other people. Okay? We got to build the church on spiritual things, on spiritual doctrine, on spiritual truth, not the ideas of people and things that happen in this life. Because when judgment comes, and as Peter tells us, the elements melt, as John tells us in Revelation, the earth passed away, the heavens passed away, there was no more sea, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Well, all the things from the old heaven, earth, sea, that whole, that's all gone. So if we're building the church with things from this life, they don't last. That's not worth even bothering. That's not how you build the church. Because the church is God's temple. God dwells in the church. And we need to treat it as such. And not corrupt it, contaminate it with inferior building materials. Like truth that's not God's. Truth that's not God's. Unlike our society today, there's not multiple versions of truth, and your truth, and my truth, and all truth is equally valued. No, Jesus is the truth, and that's the truth that we start with as the foundation, Paul tells us, but then we've got to build on it with his truth and his perspective, not a worldly perspective. Okay, so then in chapter 5, he starts addressing immorality in the church, and he, it, this is the same thing, it's just a different aspect of it, Okay. Part of the corruption in the church, part of this issue, and apparently one of the doctrines that they were dealing with, is very permissive doctrine, specifically sexually. And we know from other documents that there was uh, some of this in the early church, that, uh, and like the first couple hundred years, that, you know, just like Plato and, and, and the Greek philosophers taught, the flesh and spirit are different. And so the fleshly world doesn't even matter. It's inferior and it's separate from what happens spiritually. No. God created both, and what happens in the flesh affects the spirit, and what happens in the spirit affects the flesh. They're interrelated. So it, Paul's addressing those kinds of thoughts and that false teaching here, and how this gets worked out in the church. So he addresses church discipline. This particular issue at stake here, he's picking an egregious example to say, hey, stop it. This guy is, has his father's wife. Now, this was a crime in Jewish law. This was a crime in Gentile law. 
he says, even the Gentiles wouldn't think of this. They think it's obscene. You're embarrassing the church. Stop it. Uh, it was bad enough that it's cited by Amos as one of the reasons God's bringing judgment on the nation of Israel is because this has become common practice. Okay, the, the family is sac sacrosanct. The family is sacred. The two shall be one flesh and man and woman together as one is something God established at creation. It's the way he made the world. We don't violate that. Okay, that, that you just don't. Regardless, I mean, that was before the fall. Okay, that, that's God's will. That's what he does. That's not law. That's the purpose of God in creating us. So he's saying, just, just stop it. Okay, and you need to kick this guy out of the church. This is that bad. All right, you, you need to have judgment in the church. And, and he gives us a, a kernel of truth here that's important to understand. We expect Gentiles, in their case, we expect the world, we expect those that are not of Christ to do immoral things. You can't leave the world at this point one day, but not today. So you, you got to get along. I'm not saying don't don't deal with anybody that's immoral. But if they call themselves a Christian, yeah, don't even associate with them. So something to think about. So, But he says we, that's who we're supposed to judge is within the church. Don't judge the world. That's God's problem. In the church, though, this is family business. We can handle it. Okay. And Jesus, in Matthew 18, talks about that. And Paul's taking that teaching and applying it. And I'm going to come back to Matthew 18 here in a minute. Because a lot of people say, oh, if there's sin, here's how you handle it. You go to the person. Then you bring somebody else with you. Then you bring it before the church, right? There's a caveat to that that's very important. And Paul kind of addresses it here. So with that background, without further ado, let's get into the passage. He says, dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more are things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren? Okay, so he, you got to understand that the world has a worldly perspective. In the church, we're supposed to have a spiritual perspective. We're not subject to the laws of the world, really, because we're not part of the world. That's not where our citizenship is. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, we have to get along. We're, we're told elsewhere to obey and honor the civil authorities. God puts them in place. Just like an ambassador of another country it doesn't just flaunt the law, right? I mean, you, you've heard of ambassadors doing that probably in diplomatic immunity. I can speed if I want. You can't do anything about that. It embarrasses the host country. Don't do that. Okay, so we're, we're supposed to voluntarily be subject to these things because we need to get along. And that's what Christ would have us do. And he commands us to do it. That's in Romans 14 that Paul relates that, but we're not subject to that. We're subject to God's law and walking in the spirit and being part of God's family. And so that's where our, our business needs to be handled when it's between brothers in Christ. Something we got to remember about Roman law is that it worked different than ours. They didn't have criminal law and civil law. That just wasn't a thing. They have the law. 
And so if someone does you wrong, you do it, it, the process was kind of like we file a civil suit, but you do that for criminal matters. So if someone robs you, you press charges and it's the same court that would say that's criminal. You're going to jail or being flogged or whatever as it says, okay, you stole, you need to repay. It, it's, there's no distinction there. And in our courts, that gets fuzzy sometimes with things like punitive damages. And you can think of it like that, that the criminal sanctions are rolled into punitive damages and it's all one court. All right. So you're filing a lawsuit and the, the penalty for being found not in the right place in the lawsuit could be death if, you, if you've done something that bad. Sometimes the state could be the plaintiff in these, like in a case of treason. Uh, but usually it was, you come here, we're going before the judge, like our civil suits are. All right. So that's important to note, uh, because in Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, he's saying, what he's really saying there is don't drag him before the Gentile judge. Don't drag him before the worldly judge. Instead, go to your brother and say, hey, man, you did me wrong. Not. Go to your brother and say, I see you doing this thing is wrong. Mm -mm. Got to have standing. You need to go to him and say, hey, you've done me wrong. That's where this church discipline thing comes in. All right. If they're just doing something wrong that doesn't affect me, my job is to pray for them, help them walk through it and help them to become more like Jesus. And if it's an embarrassment to the church, then the church can be the plaintiff, just like the state can be the plaintiff. And you deal with it. as Paul tells us to in first corinthians 5 where he says look this is bad get rid of the guy purge the evil from among you if it's that bad you do that if it's short of that our job is to go to them and say help let me help you walk through this okay it's not to drag everything before the church matthew 18 that process is talking about when someone has wronged me and and we're going to see that come out a little bit in what paul says here okay so there's that side of it um, the other side of this is organizations were allowed under Roman law to handle their own discipline. For example, the Jews would have like a San mini Sanhedrin. You remember the court in Jerusalem that tried the apostles and flogged them? They're not a Roman court. Do they have that authority under law? Yeah, they do. And not just in Israel. In fact, this was allowed in other parts of the Roman Empire. Guilds were allowed to discipline their members. Uh, particular sects were allowed to discipline their members. Uh, organized bodies of particular nationalities were allowed to do it. If you had a, a Greek community in Turkey, maybe, or, or in Italy, they, they were allowed to do their thing. And so the Jewish communities that identified as such and gathered at the synagogue and so forth were allowed to discipline their members within that context. They couldn't do the death penalty, but they could flog people. They could put them in stocks. They could expel them. And so that's the context for what Paul's saying we need to do here, okay? Given the different situation and the different legalities of it, that we can't impose criminal sanction as the church, um, this is going to work out a little different. But we need to understand the principles as the same. That we need to be able to mediate between people. And we need to be able to handle things as best we can uh, within the church before dragging it before civil authorities. All right? So... Getting back into the specifics, this isn't for generic sin, okay? You got to have standing to bring this before the court. And, and knowing this is a continuation of chapter five, I read this as 
the father and son are before the court trying to get justice for this. The Paul's talking about the same thing throughout. He's going to come back to sexual immorality. This isn't a standalone passage. This is why context is so important, right? He's talking about the man have his father's wife. Later in the chapters, we're going to see in a minute, he talks about sexual immorality and sexual sin. So what he's saying here is, if, if there's sexual immorality and you're like, dude, this guy cheated on, my wife cheated on me with this guy, you don't bring that adultery to the civil authorities, you bring it before the church to be handled, is what, what Paul's addressing here. And, and not just that, the principle extends to anything the church can handle. Now, murder, I'd turn them over to the civil authorities for, for life imprisonment, capital punishment, that sort of thing. So, you got, again, you got to use your judgment in our specific situations, but understand the principle. So, he says, let's, let's take this worst case, and, and let me address the worst case, and you can apply the principle too. Is this pagan judge qualified to settle a dispute between two people that aren't citizens of his realm, they're citizens of heaven? I mean... In our world, a judge doesn't have jurisdiction over an ambassador from another country that has diplomatic immunity, right? It's kind of what Paul's saying. In fact, the least in the kingdom is more fit to judge than the greatest worldly person. Why? Because that worldly person has worldly wisdom, and the least Christian should have a spiritual perspective and understand what we're talking about here when we say we're brothers in Christ and we have this dispute. So, he's, he's saying even, even with your immaturity, you still should be better off with a spiritual perspective than a judge who's not a Christian. That's why, and, and the wording is a little, a little funny here in Greek, and it's translated differently in different places. The King James takes it as a command, set the least person as judge. Others sometimes take it, why, why don't you get the least person among you as judge? Others take it as, why do you go to court and have as a judge someone who has no standing? Least. But their take of it is, the person with no standing is the pagan judge. Okay, so regardless, the point is, even a baby, brand new Christian should be more qualified to judge than someone who's not a Christian when we're talking about judgment between brothers. We're going to judge angels. That's odd. I don't even want to get into that because I don't understand it. I just know that we're to rule and reign with Christ and that God's purpose is for us to have dominion, to reign under him and with him. We see that in Genesis. So, whatever that means, I can't tell you. It, what it does tell us, though, is our purpose is not to go up to heaven and sit on a cloud. We're, we've got stuff to do. It's not for us to sit in luxury. We're going to have stuff to do. And that, that's about all I'm willing to pull out of that in, in this limited context here. Anyway, back to the immaturity. You need to be mature and you need to handle your business in the church and not drag family business in front of people outside the family. We see that that way today, right? And that's what he gets into in the next little section here. So he says, I speak to your shame. It's, it's a shame that there's not a wise man among you to judge. Is it really that bad? Are you really that immature? Verse 6, but brother goeth to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law with one another. 
Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Okay, so an awful lot to unpack there. Let's, let's talk this through. Surely there's someone among you mature enough to handle this, right? That's shameful. That's utterly a fault. That's an extreme problem. If there's nobody among you that can judge between two members of their own family to settle this dispute. This is bad. You're proud of the fact that you can do these things. And what you should be doing is mourning, number one, that it's happening. And number two, that you're having to drag this into the civilian courts, into the civil courts, because no one among you can deal with it. Because you're that immature. Stop it. That's the gist of what he's saying. You're dragging your family business out into public. Brother against brother. It is better to just suffer sometimes than it is to drag your family business out in the open to have it dealt with. Is that true? I mean, th there comes a point, right? But is it better to be wronged once than to take your, your literal physical brother or sister to court over something silly? Oh, yeah. Well, in God's eyes, most matters in this life are silly because it's all going to burn anyway, right? So if we're talking about money, God owns everything. Why are you worried about somebody cheating you out of a little bit of money? Now it's wrong, and we should address it, but we shouldn't be suing each other over it. If you can't handle it in the church, just, just suffer it and trust God to deal with it. That's kind of where he's going with this. Here he's talking about adultery and a spouse. Better to, better to suffer wrong than to drag this out in a big fight, in a divorce, custody battles, all this other nonsense. So it's, it's kind of the parallel, okay? It's not exactly the same, again, as I said, but you get the idea. All right, those people out there are different. Their citizenship is different. We don't need to drag our business out in front of them to judge among our people. We're subject of God's kingdom. We're God's family. We need to handle this in-house, okay? Think of it like an ambassador. Or I was in the military and we had different rules than civilians when we went, when I was stationed overseas. There were things that the, the civilian courts simply don't have jurisdiction. I, I get tried by the military, not by the courts in, say, Japan, where I was stationed for an awful lot of things. It's the same idea here. All right, so what's he say about these people being different? He gives us this long list. And vice lists are common in Paul's writing. They're common in ancient writing in general. Uh, and it's worth, it's worth noting some of the things he lists. Um, I want to I just explain a couple terms. Fornicators, as I've mentioned before, that's just generically sexual morality. Uh, idolatry is pretty straightforward, although really it's putting anything in the place of God. It's serving anything other than God. And Jesus talks about not serving God or money. So take that the way you've probably been taught that we can apply it in the modern sense. Um, adulterers. That's pretty straightforward, a violating marriage uh, covenant, right? 
um, effeminate abusers of themselves with mankind. There is controversy about this, okay? I'm not going to get into this very far. I just want to mention it quickly because it is a controversy. Let me be very, very clear that the Greek language is very, very clear here. There's about four or five passages that address the issue of homosexuality in Scripture. It's never addressed in a positive light. And people who predetermine, well, God loves us and wants us to be happy, and this makes me happy, so let me go read Scripture and see if I can figure out a way to make it okay, will find a way to twist it and make it say whatever they want it to say. This is very clear. It uses language that kind of refers back to Leviticus, where it's called an abomination. It, the Scripture is clear. People can try to make whatever arguments they want that it doesn't mean what it says, but it means what it says. And that's pretty straightforward. The terms here in Greek, the, the King James tries to use euphemisms, but it means soft and it means lie man. Literally, it's a compound word for lying in a bed and a man. Or a male, actually, not even man. Uh, it it kind of putting a bad connotation on it, even with the term. It's the same thing Leviticus does. It's talking about both sides of a homosexual relationship. That is what it is. Sorry to get so explicit, but it's an issue in our culture, and I feel like as we're going by it, I've got to address it. Paul addresses it pretty straightforward, okay? So it doesn't matter what kind of sexual immorality, fornication we're talking about, whether we're talking about sex before marriage, whether we're talking about cheating on a spouse, whether we're talking about homosexuality, and he throws this into the same boat with being a drunk, someone who slanders people constantly, revilers, somebody who's always talking evil about people, uh, people who extort, who take money from people. None of these people, and, and people who serve other gods, none of these are part of the kingdom of God. None of these are under the reign of Christ. But you were like that. Such were some of you. But you are washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. Now, let's think about what those things mean. Because people try, theologians try to make distinctions between these things, and, and they do mean different things. But they, they try to make these hard-cut distinctions as if they're totally different, and they're not quite. So you've been washed, okay? You've been cleansed. Your sins washed away is the idea here. Sanctified, the root word is holy. You've been made holy. And then he says you've been justified. So have you been made holy and then declared righteous after your sins are washed? I don't understand. He doesn't mean declared righteous. Some people will try to tell you that's the only thing this word can mean. It's not true. Uh, it, he's not talking about a, a forensic declaration of righteousness is the technical term. He's not talking about a legal pardon for your sin here. He's saying you've been put in right relationship with God. Your sins have been washed away. That's the pardon part. You've been made holy and you've been put in right relationship with God. That's what he's saying. Okay. And you can kind of read some of that meaning into some of his other writing. You've been had all those things in the name of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. So you're not all those other things. You are this. We hear an awful lot. I'm a sinner saved by grace, at least, at least in some circles. I know I've got a broader audience than, than just the church I go to. But fundamentalists, Baptists in particular, but evangelicals in general a lot of times. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a sinner saved by grace. 
sometimes we get too locked in on, I'm still a sinner, and I've been pardoned, is what we usually mean by saved when we say such things. That's not the language Paul uses here. It's not the language Paul usually uses. In fact, he rarely puts it like that. Instead, what he says is, you were a sinner. Now you're saved by grace. You're different. You're special. You've been adopted as a child of God. You're no longer in rebellion against him. Act like it. It's really what he's getting at here. So, are we fully sanctified? Are we fully holy? Uh, it's a process too, right? But, we need to act like it's already happened and think like it's already happened. It's kind of an already but not yet is the, the lingo theologians are using these days. It's it, The promise is done, it's been paid for, it's complete, but it's not fully fulfilled yet. And we need to think of it that way, that, that I'm, I'm working towards the fulfillment of what God has already done in me. Not, I used to be that and I need to stay that way until God finishes. It's a difference in perspective that affects how we live. Let's move on. So now he gets into some quotes that, that's not real clear from the punctuation of the King James, but that's probably what it is. These are sayings. All things are lawful unto me. Quote, all things are lawful unto me. Yeah, but all things are not expedient or helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats. <laughs> but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body's not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his own power. Okay, hopefully you, you heard where I'm saying this is quotes from the way I read that. All things are lawful for me. That, that's what they're saying. And that's true. We're not under the law, right? But all things are not helpful. They're not expedient. They don't build up. They don't make us more effective ambassadors for Christ. They don't make us more effective at discipling other people to be like Jesus. They don't make us better followers of Jesus. It's not about law. It's about living to a higher standard. There was an attitude in the Greek world that, for, for some schools of thought anyway, that permeated the church in the first couple of centuries, that the physical is this over here, and the other world, the afterlife, is this over here. And there's a separation. And, and maybe the physical world is, is evil by nature and doesn't matter, and it's all about the spiritual world. And so their conclusion was, what I do in the physical world doesn't matter. It's its own thing. What really matters is the spiritual stuff. And so that's where this other quote comes from. Meats for the bellies, and the bellies for meats. God, God, hey, God made my belly to eat. Right? So I should eat whatever I want. I can be a glutton. And the idea is, hey, God gave me parts for sexual function, and that's what they're for, and I should do it. Sounds logical, right? He's like, you're being a fool. All that's going to be destroyed. Right? We get resurrection bodies, they're changed bodies. This body does not inherit eternal life in its current form. It's going to be very different. It, the, the way it is now will not last forever. So, why are you... Well, yes, you are in your physical body that's not going to last. Why are you worried about doing things in your physical body that's not going to last? You have the wrong perspective. Make sense? It's not that there's there's two separate, so I can do whatever I want here because it, it doesn't matter. 
It's they're very different, so I don't need to worry about doing anything here. I need to worry about the spiritual. It's, it's a radically different perspective. It's a different way of thinking. God's going to change this body, and I need to act like it matters to him and have it pure and holy and ready for his return and ready to be caught up to meet him in the air. You want to be doing one of those things he mentioned in that list above when he's ready to catch you up to meet him in the air? Is that how you want to go out? Not me. No thanks. So, this next part is one of my favorite passages out of this whole book. Know ye not that your bodies are members of Christ? Members meaning body parts. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Okay, so obviously emphasis mine, uh, as people like to say in writing when they quote somebody. But that's really what he's getting at here. This is the culmination of this section. He's going to change subjects at the beginning of chapter 7. And it's very, very clear that that's what he's doing. So it's a related subject, but it's, it's kind of totally different. So anyway, he's, he's saying, look, you are God, including your body. If the Holy Spirit dwells inside you, just as the church is the temple of God from chapter 3, you individually are the temple of God. Because he dwells in you, right? You've got the Holy Spirit. Jesus lives in your heart. Then your body is the temple. And if we're, part, if we're the body of Christ together, then I'm a body part. And that means what I do, Christ does. Right? You'll hear people say sometimes, we're his hands and feet in the world, we need to show Christ's love. Well, what Paul's saying here is, when I do the opposite, when I sin, I'm trying to drag Christ into sin. If I go to a prostitute, and sleep with her, I'm making Jesus sleep with a prostitute, is literally what Paul is saying. Apply that to other sin as well. If what I do would bring discredit on Jesus if he did it, I need to understand that that's what I'm doing when I do it. Don't you see? It's not about the law. It's about love. So run from sexual immorality. This is particularly true of sex. It's, a, it's, it's about more than the law. It's about having a higher standard. It's about not bringing shame on the family. Okay? I'm not going to get into that any further because I've, I've already run a long time, but putting it all together, we are held to a higher standard, folks. Brothers, sisters, part of the family of God. I'm held to a higher standard. And it's not that it's a legal requirement for me to do this, don't do that, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go out with girls that do. It's that my behavior reflects on Jesus because it's him doing it through me, right? Theoretically. 
Except that when I walk in the flesh, it's me doing it and claiming it's him doing it through me because I'm, I'm crucified with Christ. So I act like this. It doesn't match up. What James says about this in terms of words is, can you get from a water fountain, I'm going to put it in modern terms, from a water fountain, can you get good fresh water and ocean salt water at the same time? No, you can't. One taints the other, right? So if you think you're being a witness for Christ as you're supposed to be, but you're doing these other things that are shameful to Christ, you're shameful. And unfortunately, that's what the church has become in the modern time. We have this problem, people. In some churches, it is about some of the sexual things that Paul addressed. And that's why I felt the need to talk about the homosexuality issue a little bit. He's very clear. He doesn't mince words. He talks about it even more clearly in Romans 1. Go read it. But, even beyond that issue, money. Are we serving money? Or are we serving God? Are we idolaters? Do we talk bad about all kinds of people? Maybe people we don't agree with politically, and we're constantly bad-mouthing somebody? Whether you lean towards the Democratic Party, and you constantly bad-mouth our president, who is our president, he's in office, and we're showing respect, according to Romans 14. On the other hand, do you do the same for the Speaker of the House, who's a Democrat, if, if you lean Republican? She's also an authority, and we're also to show her honor. And you can apply it to anybody else. Do we constantly talk evil about people? Do we realize that if we claim to be Christians, we're claiming the words that come out of our mouth? Are Jesus working through us? And we're, we're claiming that Jesus has that to say about those people? In, in essence, even if we don't say that, when I say I'm a little Christ and I'm a follower of Christ, I'm saying this is the kinds of things Jesus does. Maybe it's another thing that's not listed in this vice list, but it's listed elsewhere, like gossip. Like gluttony. Like, well, drunkenness is listed here. There are groups that, that think that we should do such things to show how free we are in Christ and that he's forgiven our sins. In Romans, Paul says, God forbid, don't let me abuse grace. And yet that's what we do. We need to live out the gospel. James tells us that a faith that we claim we have that doesn't affect our behavior doesn't say it. It's pointless. It's vain. It's empty. Show me your faith by your words. Show me your part of the family of God by what you do, by acting like Jesus and bringing credit to him and bringing him glory rather than being dis bringing discredit and shame on the family. Do you love him enough to represent him well? Do you love his family, each other, enough to treat each other right even if the other one did you wrong. That's not law. That's grace. And that's Paul's point here. It's the outworking of our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its clarity. I thank you for the way it pierces to our heart. And as Hebrews tells us, it makes a division between the soul and spirit. It's the same division Paul talks about 
in the first part of this book that is the world's thinking and spiritual thinking. The world's way of doing things just in this realm and your way of doing things and thinking of things and perceiving things. God, help us to walk in the Spirit. Help me to walk in the Spirit. Help me to not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Renew my mind, Lord, so that I can do your will and bring you glory. Help me to be a good part of your family that brings you honor and not discredit. I pray for everyone that hears this message, that they would have the same prayer, that they would bring you honor. And I pray that if there's someone who hears this that doesn't know you, that they would consider that maybe, just maybe, their hesitation is due to having dealt with people that aren't acting like very good members of the family. Help them to look to Jesus rather than those of us who aren't quite there. God, I pray that you'd mature your people. Help us to see things your way so that we can be the church you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining me. See you again next time. God bless.